0: So I've got a specialized subject. I love to deliver it. If I could take it to the ionosphere, hell, I'd want to be a rock star. I'd want to be Mick Jagger. Because (laughs) the rush that I get when I get off the podium, it's probably multiplied by a thousand percent for a guy like that.
1: And I'm going, boy, would I like that experience. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that... Eddie Osterlin lives by a piece of advice that was told to him by his father. Watch for the gold ring. Eddie's dad used to ride a merry-go-round in Brooklyn as a child and the best part was getting an outside horse and every once in a while there was an arm that would drop down with cartridges of lead rings that you could grab if you were lucky enough to be on the right horse. And if you got one of these rings, you got a free ride. But once a week, there was a brass ring and if you managed to get it, you got free rides for the year. Eddie's dad called this the gold ring. You never know when it's going to come by, so be vigilant, reach out, grab it and ride it wherever it takes you. It may not be the end all, but the next gold ring you see coming might not come along for 7 years or more. Eddie's gold ring was a plane ticket from New Jersey to Honolulu. He decided to take a vacation after he got a degree in psychology before jumping into his career. He and a friend went down to a travel agency intending to buy a one-way ticket to California. And the travel agent told them that just for another $95, they could buy tickets to Honolulu instead. And so that's what they did. Eddie decided to stay in Hawaii and started studying psychopharmacology at graduate school. He started working as a waiter at night, but one night, the sommelier was sick, so Eddie ended up filling in, which inspired him to move to France and study professional wine tasting at the University of Bordeaux, ultimately allowing Eddie the opportunity to become America's first master sommelier, the tip of the triangle. Now Eddie combines his food and wine expertise with sales psychology to create memorable events that help businesses acquire new clients. His tips for power entertaining include always serving wine in pairs so that you have something to compare it to, serving your best food and wine first. And if you're entertaining at a restaurant, don't let the restaurant control your experience. Make friends with the sommelier and book a quiet private dining room. Never let the check come out to the table and give your credit card, billing information to the restaurant beforehand, and tell them to automatically add a 25% tip, and you will control the room. Even if you don't like wine, there is so much information that every single person who listens to this episode will take away from and be able to apply in their everyday life. Actually, one of my favorite moments was when Eddie talks about how we should experience a good wine, how wine attacks our palate, evolves, and then finishes. And I think that that is an analogy that we can apply to everything that we do in life. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Eddie Osterland, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I am very excited to learn more about your story learn how a kid from New Jersey became America's first master sommelier. So welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show.
0: Yay, thanks, Mike. Good to be here.
1: As we do with every single guest, we always begin at the very beginning with the origin story. So who is your childhood hero coming up in New Jersey?
0: Boy, my childhood hero had to be uh, probably uh, George Wilson, my football coach. Just to- really? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But football was a a great thing for me. You know, really, I learned so much from from this coach.
1: What what specifically did he teach you about about sports, about teamwork, and about yourself?
0: Going for what you want and uh, and not stopping until you get there. Mm. Um, there's that figure in my life, and then there's my father, who. Um, he grew up in Brooklyn. He told me she made it to 98 years old. And I asked him, I think about 95. I said, Wow, what's it like? And I'm looking for guidance. I'm in my 30s, uh, you know, looking for guidance in life. And he said, uh, Eddie, uh, back uh, back in 19, oh, 1919 or something, we used to ride the merry go round in, in Brooklyn. And he goes, uh, If you're about a 10, 11 year old guy, the fun thing was to get an outside horse because every once in a while there was this arm that would drop down. And in the arm, it had cartridges of lead rings. And if you got one of these rings, you got a free ride. Yeah. So if you had a long arm and you got the perfect outside horse and you could reach out and grab that thing, you know, boom, you got your free ride. But he said to me, um, once a week in this cartridge of uh, silver rings or lead rings, there'd be a brass ring. And it would only, you know, and he goes, you would now almost never see that. And we called it the gold ring. Because if the grass ring happened to be present at the end of this arm and you got it, you got rides for the year. And then he followed with this. He said, Eddie, my recommendation to you is watch for the gold ring. You never know when it's going to come by. When it starts to come by, be vigilant. Reach out, grab it, and ride it wherever it takes you. It may not be the end all, but he goes, Eddie, the next grass ring you see coming along might be seven years from now. So I tell that story a lot of times. Young twenty somethings for climbing the ladder of EMS. When I finish the story, I give them a gold ring. I carry them in my in my case and just let them sit with that story because that's sort of what happened to me. What happened was I grew up in New Jersey, got a degree in psychology, and uh, I said to myself before I jump out on life and uh, you know jump into the swing of things and work till I'm eighty. <laughs> Maybe I'll take a little vacation. So me and a buddy went down to a travel agency. That's how you did it back then. And we spoke to this woman. We just said, hey, we want to take a summer vacation. Never been outside of New Jersey. Give us the one way to get to California. And she looked at us and she said, she said that she said, boys, we were boys back then. She said for another $95, you fellas could go to Honolulu. (laughs) And Mike, what do you think we said to that? (laughs) Just said, "We're, we're in. (laughs) Great <laughs> that ticket anyway three days later i i find myself uh in the middle of waikiki beach you know looking over to the left at diamond head and uh well hey this is kind of cool and i think um it wasn't three weeks went by when i fell in and out of love like four times and i went damn this is so much better than <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's that's awesome
0: i gotta hang here a little
1: bit longer so and we're going um, to dive into your, your time in Hawaii in a second, but I want to go back. I want to stay for a moment in New Jersey as a kid, this yeah. kid who's who's had this powerful lesson taught to him by his father and father's example and uh, the football coach. All of those types of things had to have shaped a little bit about of what you dreamt about becoming when you were a kid. So what did you think that you wanted to be when you, quote-unquote, grew up?
0: Oh, wow. Well, you know, I didn't really know at that time. Um, You know, I I tried chemical engineering and failed miserably at that and graduated with a BA in psychology. But um, I think that the the story that you want to hear that's kind of fun is uh, I get to Hawaii. You know, I take this trip, go there on a whim like it a whole lot more than Jersey, decided to stay there. So I got myself into graduate school studying psychopharmacology, which in the seventies was a very popular course. I bet you it was. <laughs> and I uh, uh, tried to get a job at night. So I flipped the coin and I never did any of that stuff. So I decided to be a waiter. I went to the Ilikai hotel and lied my, you know, what off on the interview. Yeah. I've been there, done that. And also they stick me up there and now I'm running around the room saying who ordered this. But anyway, I finally, you know, established contact and, was making money, bought the car, had a Volkswagen bug, had a hatchback, but you could put the surfboard in. I didn't surf, but without a board, you didn't attract any women, so you had to have, <laughs> had to have the board. And uh, anyway, uh, so I'm majoring in behavioral psychology. I'm running rats through maces during the day. I got a white lab jacket on. And I would come down into the restaurant at night, and the restaurant to me was like an extension of the laboratory. The people coming in were just bigger rats. And I loved just watching the what they drank, what they ate, what they ordered. It was pretty fascinating. I mean, when I mean the bartenders, uh, people were ordering things called t and Back then, they called that was Tanqueray and Tonic. So I said to the bartender one day, I said, next time anybody orders a t and tea, let's pour the cheapest shit we have uh, in a drink and watch and see if anybody reacts. And 21 drinks later, no one ever said, this ain't, this ain't my Tanqueray. Right? Mm. And it was the first time I got curious about, well, do people, t- do people taste or do they just consume? What's going on here? Sure. So fast forwarding, one night in the restaurant, the maitre d' comes up to me about six o'clock at night. And he has this cup and silver chain and tasting thing, paraphernalia, that the sommelier Pierre wore. He comes up to me about five minutes to six before dinner opens up and he hangs his chain on my neck. And he goes, Eddie, Pierre just called in sick. You got to help me out, man. I looked at him, I said, <laughs> I'm 22 years old. I drink beer. I've never even seen the wine list. Don't, don't do that to me. I <laughs> says, Eddie, you want to keep your job? I went, uh huh. He goes, here's the rules red with meat, white with fish. Anybody on the fence, go deep, hit them with a rose. The only two roses on the list were Lancers and Matus from Portugal. That was my training program. So I ran around the room baffling people with total BS. You know, yeah, try this one, number 131 Chateau uh, Tamberlay at 16 bucks. It's a, it's a board of ducks. And I didn't know what the <laughs> hell. And, and, you know, at the end of the night, I sit down, and I pull all the tips out of my pocket. I got more money on the table than I ever have had. I'm serving wine and I don't know a freaking thing about it. And I went, how cool is this? Okay, here's what happens. A couple of months later, I started, you know, studying wine a little bit, just so, like, you know, wing it on my weekend job as a Somme. And then I finally graduated to another restaurant where they gave me a full-time job as a As As a restaurant. It was called the Trattoria. It was an Italian restaurant. So I'm working there. I'm a sommelier. I'm feeling pretty cool, 23 years old. And then I heard that uh, a gentleman named Henri Vandervoort, Henry Vandervoort, who owned a company called Burkitt Vandervoort in San Francisco, was coming to Honolulu for vacation with his family and the national sales manager let me know that he was coming to the Trattoria restaurant next Friday night at eight thirty. and the sales rep said could you put his job on the wine list and I said we're an Italian restaurant it's not going to fit the guy begged me he was "Please, he's coming to the restaurant could you put it on? so I said okay okay I put it on it was a label book so I put it right on the front page and then I decided to play a little game. i figured this guy's coming in. I'd like to meet him. I, I've never met, you know, who owns a chateau. So what I did was when I got down to the restaurant at six o'clock after leaving the lab with my white jacket hanging up on a cart, I then, every time someone came in the restaurant and said to me, they raised their hand and I would come over as the wine steward, they called them back then. And the guy would say, um, you know, my wife's having south and Boca and I'm having the vino What would you recommend? And I would say something like, if you're, Ch- if you're at Chateau Belgrave? and they'd go, is that Italian? I go, no, it's, uh, we're looking for some Chianti or something like that. This is the French wine, but it is the '66 vintage. I only have seven more bottles. Would you like to try it? Yeah. Well, no, no, I'm not sure like that. I said, you know, the, the Seltan Boca you're making, our chef Luigi, adds the, the belgrave as a little splash for the sauce. So it really ties well together. If they didn't buy it, then I'd bring them a glass and I'd say, here, try this. And when, when they taste it, it's free. When they taste it, I say, well, you want, you want one? And they ah yeah, it's pretty good. Okay, we'll take a look. So here's the deal. 8.30 at night, Henri Vandervoort walks into the Trattoria Italian restaurant, looks at the dining room, and there are 19 bottles of his wine with his label facing him. Wow. It's like the Twilight Zone. You could just see the guy go, NFW, what what, what's happening here? So yeah. he's behind his he, he has the waiter, he goes in what's happening here, you know, and he says, Oh, that guy over there did that. So he called me over and he said, uh, young man, why did you do what you just did? <laughs> I said, I was trying to get your attention. He goes, believe you me, you got it. Why don't you come over and sit down after you finish your shift and let's chat a little bit. I did. I finished the shift, sat down with the guy, two hours went by, he sent his wife home. We closed the restaurant down. And he basically said to me, Eddie. If I were you, uh, I'd stop studying behavioral psychology and I'd get with your passion. And if that's something that resonates with you, why don't you call me? You can call me Henry. um, in San Francisco. And he goes, I suggest you go to the University of Bordeaux. You learn professional wine tasting from Dr. Amy Peno. You get their DUA degree. And he goes, you know, and then... uh, who knows? There's this thing over there called the Master of exam that no Americans ever take me for. You might try that. So I did all that. I moved to France. I went to the University of Poitiers. I learned French. She set me up to do that, you know, nine hours a day for nine months. Got into the University of Bordeaux. Um, and I got a degree, the DUAD, which stands for Diplôme Universitaire d'Adaptation Vin, big long word. Anyway, that's their French degree. They still teach. They still offer that degree. You know, and then uh, I thought, well, let's see how good I'm doing. I'll go to London. Sit in on that exam. I took the exam and I passed all three parts. And I said, it's probably what I should be doing. <laughs> that's my gold ring story. You know, I mean, this guy came out of nowhere, said, why don't you think about this? I quit, dropped everything, gave up the girlfriend, moved to France. Mm-hmm and studied accelerated French where I had promised a teacher that if she gave me a D- minus in college, I would graduate in French. That's all I wanted. I promised her I'll never, ever even set foot on France or study any French if you just give me a D- and I'll pass. (laughs) Three years later, I'm studying at the University of Bordeaux.
1: (laughs) Now, when, when Henri or Henry or however you say his name, when he spoke to you and said, you know, I think you should drop everything that you're doing, and go pursue this because it's clearly a passion and you're good at it. Did you, did you encounter any sort of like limiting beliefs about what he was saying to you or any fear? And, and if so, how did you overcome it? And if not, why do you think you did not
0: I don't know. Everything I've, everything I've ever set myself to do, I achieve. And, um, I just wanted a challenge. You know, this was just such a such a great opportunity. You got to realize, you know, this, we're talking 1970, something, sixty-nine seventy, 70, uh, moon shooting. You know, uh, wine back then, was not something people ordered in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. They were like asking for the wine list. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It was mystical. People who ordered wine were either wealthy, super wealthy, usually Europeans, very well-traveled, and people at other tables would look at those people who had wine on their table with envy. Mm-hmm. It, so it was really, really something. The Americans knew nothing about wine. The, the the wine choices on the wine list were, you know, Mouton, Cadet, and Blue Nun, and Lancers, and Charles Krug, Chenin Blanc, and Wente Brothers, Gray Riesling, and Almond and Gournache Rosé, Paul Masson. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. And and we would wear that tasting cup and literally taste wine at tables to approve the wine. Customers expected the Somme to taste the wine to verify its authenticity. Could you imagine a waiter tasting your steak? <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're used in France uh, usually when they rack bottles of uh, barrels of wine, uh, they swirl it in that little cup and um, they can see if there's any sediment in there, but they, they rarely taste out of it. But yeah. we all did, we all thought that, you know, there was probably a half a dozen psalms Honolulu, and we all prided ourselves in being able to taste wine for a job. Yeah,
1: 1970, that era, that's when Robert Mondavi was traveling around trying to figure out how the Europeans made wine, how he could take California wines and bring them to the level of European wines, or so the story goes, right?
0: You no, know, Yeah, I remember Robert in the office in Honolulu, you know, pushing his first vintage of 1966. I remember tasting it with him. And um, What was
1: that experience like?
0: It was great just to be with him. I mean, personally with him and his sales rep. Um, and he was out there selling his stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't really know how the wine was. I remember it was certainly very, very drinkable, but I you know, I'd love to go back and see what it'd be like.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was going for it just like you, right? At that yeah. same time. You know, So I mean, it's, it's amazing. You're both on the threshing floor of this new experience and, uh, both achieved the Great levels of success in different ways. I mean, there's there's a lot of nuances to the whole process of becoming a master sommelier, right? I mean, we see. I mean, we can see a little bit if we go onto Netflix and watch that movie, that documentary Psalms, where they they follow around these these guys who are who love wine and are trying to become uh, sommeliers and and master sommeliers. But you don't miss out on. I mean, you miss out on the 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 coaches that are along the way, helping develop your palate and helping yeah. you understand things. So you don't get well, that aspect. What was that
0: there like? There weren't no coaches back in my day, where there was no internet. So you want to go. You wanted to go learn something. You go knock on a door, at Chateau Lafitte, and you see if they answer. I mean, I had to tell them I was a master sommelier, and they didn't even know what that was. Hmm. It was that foreign. So I just, you know, I lived in Germany for three months and I lived in France for three years. And I mean, I, I went to Italy. I mean, I, I had to go everywhere and knock on doors and, and meet people and find out. Um, it was much, much more difficult. And of course, the French don't like you to drop in. So they want letters for appointments for everything. And I really had to fight for it. You know, Definitely the hardest thing I ever did. And, you know, like, like everybody who's in, the, in the, on the ladder, you give up everything and you don't care. And, uh, you know, I just went over there. I, I actually became a French pilot licensed. I just wanted something I wanted to do because uh, I had my license in Hawaii. And I did that, but uh, I, was, <laughs> I stopped because it was very expensive. I just wanted to achieve it. But I used to notice that people would go up and fly around in five-mile radius circles and then come down and land and go. I went, you didn't go anywhere. It just went up. <laughs> <laughs> Je suis pilote. I'm a pilot. I went, oh, boy. I don't want to be with you guys, but anyway, it was kind of funny stuff that went along, you know. And then eventually, um, before I left France, I I moved to Bone in Burgundy, and I was the head sommelier at Hotel de la Poste, and that was fun. Being you know, kind of fun, I wanted to be on the floor, you know, of a major restaurant, which I was. I was the head sommelier there, and people found it. <laughs> as soon as I started speaking French, they go, "Vous n'êtes pas d'ici, si, Monsieur? You're not? You're not from here, are you?" I said, "No, I'm an American." But um, it was a good experience to to work in a French restaurant and see 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 the level. I mean, the people in this country make so much more money as a sommelier than they do in France. It's um, it's amazing, and I would wow. tell them they wouldn't, they wouldn't even believe it. They wouldn't believe how much money can be made as a luncheon
1: shift. <laughs> When you think about the the process of entertaining, I mean, obviously you've worked in all of these different restaurants at, at various levels, curated experiences. And then you have this unique perspective where now you're looking outside at the corporate world. You're looking outside at the way people run events and entertain. When did you begin to notice that people are doing things wrong or inefficiently or not as
0: uh, you know, as you said, majoring in psychology, I, I see that all around. I mean, you know, the average business person goes to a catering manager and says, hey, we got $40,000, for put a dinner on. Well, that's where it all goes wrong right to begin with, because some menus that they've engineered to be executed at the lowest food, wine and labor costs possible. So that they're selling you, you know, skewers of chicken for 10 or $11 a bite. And I just didn't have been at the montage. I, could, I couldn't believe how much money we spent. little tiny things that were you know nicely done but not enough to eat and a cost of fortune so i you know i I just noticed that if people went through me that i could make it better for them and so i wrote wrote a book in 2012 called uh, power entertaining and um right now what i do is i work i'm a client magnet i i find new clients for people and i utilize two events either a reception or uh a dinner or uh, during their entertainer been around a long time so a lot of funny stories with people laughing like crazy and it's not a dry winemaker dinner kind of thing you know i wouldn't have the audacity to tell somebody what goes with what and why because one of the things that was made vividly clear, abundantly clear to me in Bordeaux is how unique your palate is compared to mine. Mm. I mean, it's as different as our fingerprints. So what they worked at over there was they um, they tried to assemble teams of tasters who had homogenized profiles. So if someone was sensitive to acidity or someone was sensitive to sweetness, they would taste wines in Siron, you know, or acidity would go to Muscadet or something. But they had teams of four or five people who they measured their threshold of perception, how sensitive they were to sweet, sour, salty, bitter in flavors. You know, they give you water and they take, they put less acid, less acid, less acid until all of a sudden you couldn't perceive any acid in the water. That's your threshold. So they blueprinted our tongues. And when they, when they put the graph sheets around on the, you know, the, the Excel spreadsheets around on the wall, I mean, I couldn't, I, I couldn't believe how different everybody was. The guy sitting <laughs> next to me was a Shafta owner's son. And he, and you know, one of these samples, we were tasting some quinine and bitterness, and he didn't recognize any bitterness. And my reaction when he said, I don't recognize any bitterness in this glass in front of me, was like, well, what the hell are you doing in this class? Because you can't taste the bitterness in this. And I was, I was so naive to realize, nope, he didn't taste it at all. You know, and that's why I'm not a fan of chocolate and Cabernet, and I totally understand people who are. Mm-hmm. They, they, they taste differently. So... I try to tell people instead of telling people what are you going to have for dinner tonight, you're going to have a chardonnay with this fish. You're going to have a, you know, you know, some mountain fruit cabernet with this meat because my husband likes that with steak. Why not? I tell people open up a light off dry white, a full bodied white, a light easy drinking red like a gamay, and some big big guy, you know, with tannins and punch and alcohol open them all up, the ones ones that you genuinely like. When your people come over, just say, hey, here's four or five wines We got to open, sample them, why don't you bring back what you want when you have dinner, and people will come back with all different wines. So that's transferring the power to your guests mm-hmm. rather than saying, you're going to have this. Mm-hmm. So that's what Power Entertaining is all about, is um, it's like maybe having you come over and go, hey, Mike, uh, I got a little 50-bottle wine cooler over there, and I, I always serve wines in pairs, always. Because one wine, you can't really relate to it much. You can you can compare it to what you have in your memory, but you can't remember a wine very well from yesterday. So because I learned that in Bordeaux, we always do side by side comparisons. I always like to present two ones side by side. So you could come over to my house and I'd say, Mike, go in the refrigerator there. I got about 25 pairs of wines. You know, pick a pair. So you're not you're not like giving them a wine list in your house instead of saying, you're having this. You see what I'm saying? I'm trying to give them a new operating system within which people feel more special. And when you serve two wines side by side, like you serve an Oregon Pinot Noir versus a California Pinot Noir, and you ask everybody which one you think is from Oregon and they don't know, and you tell them, well, it's cooler up there, the grapes are less ripe, etc. And when they figure out which one's the Oregon Pinot, they feel good. And they learned it at your event. And I guarantee you this, you do that to them, I guarantee you within 60 days, they will do that to their friends. Why? Because Mike Flynn showed me. Mm. So there's, I tell people, there's got to be takeaway value when you put together a little wine dinner. And in order to get the takeaway value, you've got to get it done in the first 15 minutes. You've got to serve the very best wines first. You've got to serve the very best food you're going to have all night long in the first 15 minutes, because then you rock and roll. People too often, I don't allow bread to come out to the table until the entree comes, if I'm doing a dinner in a restaurant. Or I tell people, you know, if you're having people over, I live in Southern California. You know, tonight on tables will be dips, chips, nuts, you know, uh, sliced salami, cheese, you know, artisanal cheese, baguettes. You know, people coming in the house ain't no different than your dog in front of a bowl of food. They're going to nibble and nosh. They're going to dine in your freaking hors d'oeuvres. Mm-hmm. In 20 minutes, they're going to take their appetite, which starts at a 10 out of 10, and drop it to a four in 20 minutes on pretzels and nachos with dip and guacamole. That's what they're going to do. You can't right. stop them. I've noticed this. just studying behavioral psychology. We, you and me, guilty too,
1: don't like being hungry. Yes. yes. You come in, we I have two. a chips and guac addiction, I confess. There you <laughs> hey, yeah.
0: So I don't make anybody wrong for that. It's going to happen. Therefore, I tell people if you're going to make a dinner party special, if you go to a potluck course, you bring the first course. don't care if you freaking burn it. They're going to like it because they're starving. So everything I do, you know, I tell people get it done. You know, people come over and go, oh, "We're going to open eight vintages of Chateau Montrose from my husband's Dick's vertical cellar thing, and we're going to have this bottle with this course and this bottle with this course." And I go, "Tell you what, do you want me to come over and talk?" I'd be happy to do that. We're going to taste all eight vintages in the first 10 minutes without any food. So you can see side by side how the evolution of a wine goes over 20 years in Bordeaux. Then we'll have it with the food and see what's going on. I always serve the wine first because in pairs because you have an intellectual
1: segue there. You have something to talk about. Just this past week, I learned that Master the Key is now selling internationally and has become an international bestseller. And I am so grateful for the continued support of this small but transformational book with a powerful message. And there are people around the world and around the country leaving reviews on Amazon, sharing the impact this book is having in their life, I thought I'd actually take a moment to read one of the endorsements from the back of the book. This one coming from Mel Robbins, who is a person that has been on the show and many of you know of her through her work with the five second rule. What Mel says is that sometimes life throws you a gut punch and it can be hard to know where to go from there. This book, Master the Key, is an inspiring story that reminds us how important it is to stay open to opportunities that may lead you to places you never imagined. So hit pause on this episode, head over to Amazon, pick yourself up a copy or two of Master the Key, a story to free your potential find purpose, and excuse me, a story to free your potential, find meaning, and live life on purpose. And I guarantee you, this book will sit with you for many, many hours, days, weeks, months, maybe even years to come as you process this powerful message. Now back to the show. I love the principle of serve the best first that you talk about. And uh, and I'd love to learn about an experience that you had personally where someone served the best to you first.
0: I don't really know if people do that very much. You know, I, I'm the kind of guy where you're over at my house and you know I put out some shellfish and you're whaling these things down because it tastes so good. And you go, Eddie, these are cool. I don't I don't quite recognize these. And I go, well, those are perthabes. I go, what perthabies? It's a, it's a mollusk from Portugal. Wow, they're great. Where'd you get them? Oh, portugal Mm -hmm. you you figured out it's called Mm -hmm. fedex two days ago you know it's i love that kind of thing or i love having people over and they're halfway through their steak and i go how'd i cook that okay oh yes great what kind of what kind of animal you think that is what (laughs) well it's elk or it's venison or who knows but i i like to play with people you know and uh I like to throw out wines and go. Guess where this wine comes? And it's maybe North Fork, Long Island, or maybe it's uh, Nebbiolo from Paulani in Mexico and Guadalupe Valley. Uh, it's just it's just fun to to goof with people. And you know,
1: are there Nebbiolos
0: coming out of Mexico? Oh man! I, if I if you were here, I'd open a bottle of Paulani Nebbiolo. You would. I don't think you'd ever peg it for well. You certainly wouldn't think it's Mexican, but it's a big wine. They sell them for fifty bucks retail. And I take it everywhere because it always has people kind of going
1: what? Because I that's Nebbiolos, Barolos are my favorite wine.
0: Got to get some Paolani Nebbiolo. And you know, how do you spell that? E-A-U-L-A-N-I. Paolo Paolani. Um, I'll, I'll, yeah.
1: I'll send you a picture of the of the bottle. Cool, awesome. Yeah, no, I I was I was going to ask you actually about Italian wines because I love Nebbiolos. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I don't find them very often, um, outside of restaurants, I'm Catholic. And there's this priest that gave a homily once. And and he said that the problem with love is that everyone is trying to be loved first. So you actually are, are operating the opposite way. You're trying to give these experiences first, serving the best first. Right. And I just think that that's so beautiful that you're, you're, you're doing that. For other people and you're teaching that to other people too oh, um
0: it's part of my philosophy is like you know in one of my chapters of the book remind me to talk to you about a radio show i'm doing but um I, i'm going to start up i tell people you know don't let the restaurant happen to you what's that all about mm-hmm. you know mike flynn shows up at his eight o'clock reservation party at six and they go oh mr flynn's good day have you here um tell you what you're your table is just about ready. Perhaps you'd like to have a seat in the bar and um, there we will ding you for $15 for four or six cocktails and then magically your table will be ready and then we'll usher you in. I don't like that shit. So I tell people, tell you what, instead of getting an 8 o'clock reservation and thinking you got it made, you're one of 50 people with the same 8 o'clock reservation all like baby birds screaming, gimme, gimme, gimme. So I go, what you want to do is you want to bond with a psalm. You want to... Find a psalm if you're fortunate enough to have one in your town. doesn't have to be a credential psalm. It could be a wine director. But preferably if you're in a major market, there's tons of psalms out there. And um, make friends with that person, he or she. You know, Go down on a Tuesday night at 6 o'clock at night and make, and make, you know, make your acquaintance. So, you know, because I'll tell them, Eddie Oppsman said, you ought to be friends with psalm Lea's in town. Well, you know what happens. You know, eventually, you find the right guy or the right gal. And then the next time Mr. Flynn shows up, uh, Mr. Flynn has worked with me, the psalm two weeks in advance. We chose the whole menu. We only want to be in a private dining room where it's quiet. To drink two wine chateau at two different vintages and look for the subtlety and do that at 8 o'clock at night amongst 200 people in a steakhouse is stupid. It's too loud, you can't see it, you will not see it. The wines are marked up 300%, they're served at the wrong temperature, room temperature, in lousy glassware, nothing like that makes any sense. Unless you can be in a quiet private dining room, then it makes sense. And So then when they greet you, when I greet you, hi Mr. Flynn, I know all the names of the people in your party, we've already designed the menu, we're gonna do two wines with each course. Each course will be two or three bites, no more you don't need any more than that. If people run out of appetite, game over, your game is done. So guard their appetite, start with the best things first. I, I love to use caviar and, and Russian vodka or champagne. And boom, 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 we go through everything like that. When it's all said, done, don't waste a lot of time, don't spend two hours. Get it done in an hour and a half. You get up and go, this was great, but I do it again. And you leave. And people are kind of like, well, the check didn't come. Check never comes from Mike Flynn because you know, I've got his credit card on file. He's instructing whenever I walk in his door, put 25% tip on that credit card. That's power entertaining. That's mm-hmm. all people are kind of going, wow, Mike, you, you know, you they love you here, you know. Yeah, they do. Well, um, okay. uh, mm-hmm. that's how you use a restaurant. That you don't want the restaurant to happen to you. So yeah, I like to help people become, you know, a little more confident. You know, in their ability. So, yeah, everybody else is doing Chardonnay and Cabernet. Please don't do what everybody else does. There's nothing wrong with those wines, but try to go outside the envelope and pick a Godeo from Spain, you know, which is Chardonnay like, um, less money. It's on every decent, you know, Spanish wine list or, you know, Fiano d'Avellino in, in Italian, whatever. But find things that are not Pinot Rigio. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. And
1: do something. My mother in law's favorite wine.
0: You know, it used to be Chardonnay. Now it's that, which is crazy because most of it is awful, as you know. So I just get a get a kick, and I say to people, you know, I used used to be a pilot for thirty five years. I said you could fly at this altitude with everybody else, or you could just come up about one thousand feet and fly with the eagles, and you are what Charlie Sheen called it a few years ago,
1: winning. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you've poured. Thousands of bottles. I mean, do you even know, like, at this point, how many bottles of wine you've poured for people?
0: I'll tell you this. How about this one? You're not near me to see my hand, but I had a very bad pain right here, and I went to the doctor. He did an X-ray, put it up on the whiteboard, and when he was back to me, he laughed. He goes, "You have no cartilage between here and here." I said, "What do you mean? I didn't, I didn't traumatically hurt it or damage it." He said, "What do you do for a living?" I said,
1: "This." So oh, interesting.
0: He said you wore, you wore it out. Yeah. And you bone on bone. Do you know what he did? Yeah. We have this tendon on our on our arm here. He pulled the scars here, here, here. They pulled that tendon out. He rolled it up like an escargot. It's called an escargot experiment or, or operation. He cut my hand right here and he stuck it right in there. And now, no problem. But I wore out my hand, so... 20,000 bottles I don't know
1: (laughs) a a lot of bottles what's the funniest experience that you've had serving wine either to a party or an individual
0: (laughs) well this is the funniest there's there's probably a bunch of them but I remember this one guy who was pretty wealthy had came into the restaurant he had two women on you know on either side of him and um he ordered some bottle very expensive, Chateau du Coup from 47, or it was ridiculous. So it was the rarest bottle of wine in the restaurant. And um I came to the table and I decanted it to the height of my profession. And I went to pour him some and he put his hand over the glass and he said to me, So is uh, you're not going to taste the wine for me? I said, no, But of course. But of course. so I poured some out out of the carafe you know, I had. I poured it in my tasting cup and I tasted it, and I told him. This wine was at its apogee. It's you know The fruit is still hanging in there. It's going to go great with his steak, Diane, with a reduction sauce. Wonderful. And then Jean-Jacques, the waiter, comes out with his l'entrecote. He's got the flames going, and as the flames die down, Jean-Jacques cuts a slice of this guy's steak and puts it in his mouth, and the guy's looking at him like, what are you doing? And he said, well, we, you just had the sommelier taste your wine. I thought I'd make sure your steak was okay. <laughs> I like to goof
1: with people, and you know, oh my gosh, play games. That's like- that's funny. Yeah. Uh, I have some some wine specific questions for you, and one of them actually, you, I'll, I'll ask this one first because you had mentioned a rare wine that this guy had ordered, and and I'm 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 curious because I've never had like a I've certainly seen on menus wines that are like tens of thousands of dollars or thousands of dollars like a Latosh or a Roman Conté, but like what makes those bottles of wine worth the thousands of dollars that people pay for them versus the, the $50 Nebbiolo that you mentioned a minute ago, like, like how do I, I, I just want to justify that?
0: You know, it can come down to a couple of things. One, you know, if you got an old wine, that's not around, you know, the value is, in, is increased. Uh, I went to uh, the French Laundry for my 70th birthday, and um, my uh, wife uh, bought a bottle of 1945 Chateau Grand Peleros, and you know it had never moved. It was brought over by a friend of mine in Bordeaux. It had never moved from the chateau to the French Laundry in just one move, and it was just you know ethereal to, to taste something that old and 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 you know and and that refined. Kind of reminds me of a story when uh, a client gave me a bottle of 68 Vegas' Cecilia Unico very rare wine, you know, a thousand dollar bottle kind of thing. And uh, I brought it up to Aliotto's restaurant because Nuncio Alioto is a great friend of mine and my, my, my favorite master psalm. I brought my 19 year old daughter. And um, anyway, so he drank this wine and he looked at me and I looked at him and he goes, Eddie, 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 and any, uh, any wine taste better than this wine does on the planet today? I mean, it was just like the best. My daughter picks up her phone, calls her boyfriend at Cornell and says, you know, Gabe, I wish you were here. You know, I'm having the greatest wine i ever had in my life. And then you're not here. I'm just sorry. Anyway, just want to let you know. She hangs up the phone and Nuncio reaches down to her and says, young, young lady, I want you to know something. Not only is this wine the greatest wine you've ever had in your life, this wine may very well be the greatest wine you will ever have in your life. That's how good this wine is. Wow. She never, never forgot that story. But, you know, so there's scarcity, which makes wine valuable. And then there's just plain quality, you know, the, these wines that, uh, you know, critics give 100-point things scores to. I like to, to describe something that Dr. Painot taught us in Bordeaux. And that is, you know, every wine, basically, let's say red wines, has a foretaste, middle taste, and an aftertaste. And in French, they call this the attack, the evolution, and the finish. And basically, the longer the finish, the better the wine. The longer the finish, the more expensive the wine. But he took it even one step further, and he kind of said, when wines get to be psychedelic, as Tim Gazer calls them, where they, a glass of this wine goes into the capillaries in your brain that have never before been visited, that's mm-hmm. world-class wine. And what makes that world-class wine, to me, is this. It starts with a rich attack. Everything's in balance. The tannins, which are bitter. The acids, which are sour. The fruitiness, which comes from sweetness, sugar, and alcohol, they're all in balance. That's what you want. But when you swallow that wine, in the aftertaste, as it begins to feather out and taper, many wines start to break up, and the tannin goes this way, or the fruit usually dries out. But as the wine starts to finish, it starts to fall apart. Here's a perfect example. There's a Beatles song called A Day in the Life. And at the end of that song, you've heard it. It ends with one big bong chord. Mm -hmm. In the studio, I'm told, they held that chord for over 60 seconds. You only hear it for four seconds on the radio. But literally, that note sustained for 60 seconds. And to me, the greatest wines I've ever had in my life, when they come over the top, and they start to tail, they start to feather themselves out. They don't break up. They're just as good in the aftertaste as they were in the foretaste. What I'm saying is the integrity of the wine is as if you put you played the, the chord, chord of C on a piano keyboard, and then you hit the sustaining pedal, and the note just durates, and it doesn't break up. It's not just a long finish that's got a little bit of acid or tannin. It's just harmonized. It's it's the liquid symphony. Mm, mm -hmm. That's That's beautiful. That's what what makes great wine. Great.
1: This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, They work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. What is a wine that surprised you? It doesn't have to be a thousand dollar bottle of wine or anything like that, but like, what is a wine that you purchased that you you weren't like certain about, but surprised you? It was so good.
0: Well, I wasn't when I purchased it. I, I took a trip to Greece with a master of Someways and we went to a place on the island of Santorini called Domaine Sigalas, owned by a guy named Paris Sigalas. And we tasted his wine that is made from a grape called Assyrtiko, A-S-S-Y-R-T-K-O. And um, he ages them in barrels, and he does them in stainless steel. And together we sat there for three hours until late at night tasting 20-year-old bottles of his white wine that were arguably almost as stunning as white burgundies. And this wine's you know, a $30 bottle of wine. Um, so I tell people, if you, if you, don't, if you don't have any Domain Sigilas, Get some because it's great to kind of pull it out to bring to a party. It's not expensive. Everybody's going to like it. Same thing I like with Godeo from Spain. But I mean, always bringing something different. You know, I have wines in my cellar that are from the north Fork of Long Island. I just like to bring it once in a while and have people kind of go, what? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, like a Nebbiolo from Mexico. That would be a what moment as well. Oh, that's, that's my go-to wine when I want to wow people. Put something
1: out there. So- of- I have a, a, a fan submitted this question of, of my show. Her name is Alexis. She's actually one of my childhood friends. She asked, for someone that really enjoys wine, what's the best way to continue to develop your palate and become more educated?
0: Well, no question. You want to either form a tasting group. I mean, it depends on how serious you want to be. I mean, not everybody wants to get you know uh, a certified SOM or anything like that. I, I could care less, you know. But the only way you're going to get better is to hang with people who know more about it than you and who probably are doing, a, you know, some kind of tasting group or classes. Where do you live?
1: Santa Cruz, California. Yeah.
0: Okay. You know, obviously there's plenty of wine courses around here. But I mean, the only way to get better is one blind taste with people who know more about it than you. Preferably Psalms or there's all kinds of tasting groups. Mm. But, um, you know, if you don't taste blind, you're never going to learn. Mm -hmm. Uh, although as i said to you earlier thrust the wine in front of somebody and say what do you think it is because the chances of them getting it right are almost a thousand to one no so they're going to lose and they're not going to like you so i I don't blind taste people on anything unless it's upfront agreed to we want to do this then that's fine but i've just seen too many too many people try to use that and it backfires or it stumps somebody and they feel good but it's just you know Blind tasting is the way to learn, but yeah, behind closed doors with people who are all in agreement, and then it makes a little difference to the world. But certainly, certainly, tasting wines side by side. You know, pick and I tell people, you want to see uh, you want to show off something to somebody, you buy a bottle of Louis Martini Cabernet, and you buy his Napa, and you buy his Sonoma from the same vintage. The Sonoma is $20, the Napa is $40. Is it Mm -hmm. twice as good? Probably not. Is it better? Decidedly so. But you will see... I mean, it's a fun lesson to show somebody who says, oh, I never spend more than $20 while I... You know, I wouldn't know the difference. Oh, yeah, you would. Mm. And the only way you would
1: is to do those two things side by side. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. My wife... Not my wife. My brother's wife, my sister-in-law happens to work for Gallo, which now owns... Louis Martinelli. So maybe I'll have, I'll have to arrange uh arrange a uh, 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 side by side of that. Where where does where do people pick up wines like that? That bottle of wine from from Greece and the Paulina. Where, where would they buy those? Like if where would a guy from Santa Cruz go to get those types of wines?
0: Oh, wine i'd I probably go online to a wine shop. Sure, maybe J and L wines. You know, in San Francisco is going to have anything you want, but definitely online. Okay. That's right. Look at I me. Mean, if your wine shop, unless you got a really good wine shop, you could where you live find that stuff. But yeah. From, okay. Most people around the country you're going to have to buy that line. Go so to Kermit Lynch or something like that.
1: What do you think is the best California wine for fifty dollars or less?
0: Uh, I'm liking Claudevall Cabernet. If you're going, if we can get to seventy-five, I'm, right, go seventy-five. Yeah, go for it. Uh, I like Kathy Corison, C-O-R-I-S-O-N. And I like her wines, and I like the wines from Cote and others of that style because they are, let me say it this way, Bordeaux-like, meaning mm. restrained elegance, mm. meaning 13.5%, maybe 138 But and mean, Kathy Corison said I'd make my wine at 128 If the sun wasn't so darn hot up here in Napa, I, I would try to Pull the fruit and have it at a restraint because these wines, they drink, I call them pretty. Mm-hmm. In my mouth, it's not a mouthful of wine that take no prisoner. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to take over. I'm going to win. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to 10 out of 10 on the Bong Show. Yep. <laughs> but I'm also a food killer. You know, I'll win a contest, but I'm just so concentrated. I don't enjoy, I don't, in, I enjoy that you could create that. I don't think it takes a lot of talent to create a monster like that. Yeah. It sure as heck takes a lot to create and blend like what Kathy Carson is doing with her Cabernets.
1: That's beautiful. Thank you for those tips. We'll definitely include those in the show notes. As As we wrap up this conversation, I want to make sure that people know where they can connect with you. And you mentioned that you're starting a radio show. So maybe you can give that a little bit of a plug right now.
0: I'm trying to tee up sommeliers from around the country. I'm trying to say to people, you better go and meet these sommeliers. So we're gonna have a semi-call from the floor. And what I'll do, and I've started book 14 psalms in San Diego on the next next trip, will be Vegas. I'm interviewing Psalms, little five minute interviews, sort of like what we're doing. Just saying, what's your favorite food and wine pairing? What are you turning people on to? What is your you know, what are your favorite wines and this value? So that people can discover these people, go meet them, you know, and I'll be interviewing from around the around the country so that's my uh my newest venture you know i don't I don't drink wines like I did when I was forty I mean it, you shouldn't so the show is gonna give me some relevance because I'm gonna be talking to the people who are on the floor now that are twenty six to thirty six years old probably and going what's hot in Atlanta what's going on in Poughkeepsie Et cetera and um, oh wow you know, so great. that couple that coupled with you know i'm um, I'm hired to do dinners or events where I uh, either I'm entertaining them during the dinner. Um, I'll send you a clip on that if I have your email. I think I do. Or I do a, a reception. I mean, here's something interesting. Every single meeting starts with an opening night cocktail networking reception. But studying behavioral psychology, here's what I see. People come in the ballroom for the opening night network reception. They're shy. They're timid. They don't like making idle chit-chat with strangers. So they take their best friend they came in with, and they go to 50 yards from wherever they're distributing alcohol, and they camp there for 40 minutes. So much for the networking. Nobody walks, nobody moves, meets anybody. Might as well take the word networking right out of the program. So what I did is I created this thing. It's a passport. It looks just like an a, you know, American-U.S. passport, and in it, it has stations, that people can walk from one station to another station. And at each station, I have a food and wine combination that needs to be tasted together in the mouth. My my equation is one plus one equals three. When you put food and wine together, each, the food and the wine, should amplify each other's assets. So you wouldn't eat a French fry and then follow it with a spoon of ketchup. That'd be silly because they have to be tasted together. Mm -hmm. Well, I try to teach people that wine is more of a condiment than a beverage. So, at each of these stations they go to, they get to taste the wine first, and it might be full of acid. They might not like it, but when they take that crab cake with remoulade sauce and put it in their mouth, and then they add the wine together, they balance each other, and light bulbs go on, and people start treating wine differently as a condiment. And then there's five stations in the room, so they they have to go to each one of these stations. So they move around and start meeting new people. They have this passport that they can take home as a souvenir and repeat it themselves. That's what I do in an event. I make sure it has take home value and now these receptions actually make people network and move around. Works pretty well. I just, yeah, actually,
1: I watched, uh, I watched a couple of videos of, of your different events uh, and it, they're, they're just people are having a ball.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm working for, you know, Fidelity and United and Korean airlines visa and um they're they're using me all the time because i'm finding them new clients. yeah absolutely food and wine is the international currency for connection (laughs) it's an event that i do i guarantee you're going to see some great things you know if your budget is limited we're going to we're going to spend the money in the first 15 minutes probably do caviar uh farm-raised caviar right now is very reasonable dollar gram it it Mm -hmm. also makes caviar something that people now can enjoy and it tastes very close to anything they've ever had before, but it's reasonable.
1: Well, here it comes to the first of the three questions that I ask of every single guest. And the first is, if you could take any skill set that you currently possess, so a skill you already have, and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? And it doesn't have to be related to wine. It could be anything.
0: Well, it certainly would be, I mean, the thing that thrills me the most is public speaking. Um, I got real good at it. You know, it took many, many, many years. It took the Dale Carnegie public speaking course, of an excellent course that separates the men from the boys. But, um, you know, I love being on stage because I'm passionate about what I have. I went to a university where they taught me stuff that Americans never hear about, retro nasal breathing and, you know, attack evolution finish and le mise en bouche and all these things like that. So I've got a specialized subject. I love to deliver it. Um, if I could take it to the ionosphere, Hell, I'd want to be a rock star. I'd want to be Mick Jagger. Because the rush that I get when I get off the podium, it's probably multiplied by a thousand percent for a guy like that. And I'm going, boy, would I like that experience.
1: Wow, cool. That's probably one of my favorite answers recently. I love that. What do you think are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from pursuing the opportunity that shows up unannounced? Such as your, gold your surprise sommelier moment.
0: Well, I told you the gold ring story, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's basically what I'm saying is that you never know what's what could be around the bend, and I just tell people to be vigilant and and, and go where you need to. It's kind of an interesting. Here's something that's not always a popular answer, but you know, I get calls from people here in San Diego. So, Mr. Osterl, I'm, I'm here in San Diego and I, I really like what you've achieved with your life. And uh, I want to be a psalm and I want to do this and I want to do that, you know. And, uh, and I started talking to him and uh, they said, would you be willing to be my mentor? And I said, you know, I'd be glad to coach you and, and help you out. I said, but uh, like you, Mike, um, I have to ask you one question first. Oh, yeah, anything. Are you ready to move to New York City? Mm-hmm. And they go, uh, well, I serve you know, I got a girlfriend, you know, um, I said, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about your freaking life mm-hmm. because it ain't going to happen if you, at 27 for you in a big way. Diego, you're in the right back here on a couple of coveted one positions here anyway. And I say this to them because someone called me, I met him. He was a commodity trader in New York city. I met him in Bordeaux. And when I went back to Hawaii after I got my master's only, and I was the only master's of way i a, you know, in the United States, this friend of mine called me goes, Eddie, what the hell are you doing? Living on a rock in Honolulu. He goes, don't tell me. I know you're a big deal. You're on Honolulu magazine cover, et cetera. Yada, yada, yada. I go, yep. He goes, Eddie, if I were you, my friend, I'd move your ass to New York city for five years. He said, won't be easy. Um, but if you, if you're any good at what you do, you make it. I listened to him. I moved to New York city. The first two years was murder, I was unknown. Uh, it was. I was depressed. I was, but the third year I got to know who was who. Then at fourth year, there people who run the whole show in New York, and they live between 40th Street and 60th Street. And then I had the right to move anywhere around the country because I'd met all the contacts. So I tell people, you know, you want to move ahead in life, and if you're free and single and can do it, uh, everybody should take take in New York for five years because it's a mm. whole different world. Mm, mm, I love that. I yeah, love that. that measured at standards that few people
1: exist. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I've I've spent quite a bit of time in New York and it's definitely a different world. The the last question is is comes from the title of a book. And the title of that book is How Will You Measure Your Life? But I want to ask ask this question a little bit differently by by having you answer it in terms of wines that you've experienced that that represent the most joyous occasions of your life. So if you were to measure your life and, and what you've accomplished to date, what wines would you use to represent that?
0: Okay, uh, a couple come to mind. 31 Quinta de Noval Nacional, Port. had it four or five times, probably the most mind-blowing wine I've ever had in my life. You, know, you open a bottle and the whole room of people in the restaurant goes, what did you just open? And it means mm-hmm. some of people- then the 47 Cheval Blanc, which isn't really, a, it's rather atypical wine because it's bold and fruit forward and port-like. But I have had it a couple of times, mind-blowing. The 68 Vegas azilia Unico uh, from the 68 Vintage, unbelievable. Those wines need at least 30 years before you pop the first quart. Now, these are things that come up, 59 Mouton, 45 Mouton. You know, maybe, uh, <laughs> I know what you need to hear. You need to hear my my leaving Bordeaux story. I'll tell you this real quickly. Over the three years that I spent in Bordeaux, again, I was the only master sommelier in the country. I visited chateaus on weekends, you know, in between classes. And of course, at every place, they took very special care of America's only master sommelier, gave me a really nice bottle of wine. I put it in my little Fiat and drove it back to my five-floor walk-up and put it in the closet and said, don't go nowhere. Okay, three and a half years later, it's time to go home. I've got all my degrees. I set out to become a pilot in France. I set out to be, uh, you know, get the degree from the university. I set out to be a master. So much. I achieved all those things, and it was time to go home. And I noticed that I had 116 bottles of wine in my closet that I'd never touched because I never felt I met anybody worthy of drinking any of these things. So I just stuck them. Well, I had to get them home, so I shipped about 101 bottles home to my parents in new york but there were about 15 bottles that were pretty darn special to me and i figured i'll just carry these on the plane because back then you could and i take a couple couple of eight packs put them on board so here's the story it's about four thirty in the morning we're leaving bordeaux to go to paris it's an 11 hour drive in my car it's about five and a half hours in yours. but i had a fiat 600 it at 26 horsepower And uh, I bought it from a priest for 150 bucks, and it treated me good for the first two years. I had it. The last year was a bit of a compromise because I hit a pothole, and the pothole was so severe it knocked the starter motor off my engine block, so I couldn't start the car unless I parked it on a hill and jump started it, and I found that would work. The only drawback is Bordeaux, especially in town, is rather flat, so I only found a couple of hills, and one of them was near a hospital, and uh, I found I, I found a spot I could park every day. And jump started to cry. The only drawback was it was next to a fire hydrant. And, uh, you know, maybe every third day or something, I'd like get a ticket, but i put that in the glove compartment and say, I'm living in Honolulu, you're not going to chase me. So anyway, I'm leaving early in the morning because I got about 100 of these tickets in my part- glove compartment. I don't really want any help from any police. I'm slowly pulling out. I've got my two eight packs of wine, the last bit of clothing I have left in my notebooks, and, uh, and I got a, a couple of bottles of Beaujolais, and I tapped the first one and about six AM. Uh, you know, I was celebrating. I was drinking and driving on my way up going, man, I'm home. You know, I haven't been home in three and a half years. There's no internet, so everything was done by hand letters, terrible. So we're we're tooling along and um, we get about eight hours into this trip, and maybe I'm about an hour and a half out from the airport, Le Bourget. All of a sudden a little red dial on the dashboard starts blinking. And I said, oh, shit. I said, I remember talking to a mechanic. I said, well, my kid's going I say, what is this button? And the guy said, don't worry about that. Well, guess what? It was flickering. And it was flickering in solid red. And my heart just about caved. I pulled the car over. It's now getting dark. I got an hour and a half to get to the airport. I got one ticket on an airline called Freddy Laker Express, which is like JetBlue is now. $99 ticket to New York. I bought it a year ago. It was good tonight. I need to be on that plane at 11 o'clock at night. I needed to be on that plane. You know, I hadn't insured my car for the whole year. I had 100 tickets in the glove compartment. My visas had expired. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I needed to get out of the country. So, you know, I'd been tooling along and drinking these bottles of wine. I was probably into my second bottle. When this happens, so I pull a car over. Now, get this, Mike, I can't stop the car because if I stop the car, I can't push it and start it. So I'm leaving the engine running. I pull open the hood like every, you know, and I'm just with the steaming engine and I'm saying to myself, okay, bud, you got a problem. The engine's overheating. So I've been drinking two bottles of wine on the way up, never stopped for a pit stop. So I thought, well, well I got the perfect solution? Why don't I just download some of me and that? <laughs> so I proceeded to try that. Uh, so I say, try that because at night, I didn't see there's a fan going on in the, you know, well, I'm trying to oh, do. Oh
1: yeah,
0: yeah. I can you imagine? I'm a mess now. I'm just a mess, and the light's still on. Uh, that didn't work. So then, you know, then it's called panic mode. Jump into the backseat, pull out the first box of wine, pull out the first bottle of wine. Fifty nine Mouton Rothschild. <laughs> took, took a sip of that. Put it in a radiator. Blug, 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 light's still on. Okay, let's do fifty nine Lafitte. Pull <laughs> the Put that in there. Da, 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 da. The next cast of characters that went in that radiator with a vintage of 55 and all the first growths, Lafitte, Cobrion, Margot, you name it. The next vintage, 53, Lafitte, Cobrion, Mouton, Latour, all of them in there. Two bottles of 61 Cuvée, Auspice de Bonne Cuvée doctor passed in there and the light went off. I had one bottle of wine left out of the 15. I, I didn't care. I got in the car, drove it up to the tarmac to the, 11, the aluminum stairs, climbed aboard that plane. thing ran down the runway. I had my one bottle of wine, 1945 Chateau Latour of the year of my birth. And bang, I opened that bottle up, holding it heavily with two hands, and I drank it in my seat. I mean, I put, I put you know, 14 or 15 bottles of wine in my radio in seven minutes. And I don't tell that story anymore because people go, all that stuff's a $1,000 a bottle. You know, no one in their right mind would do that. I go, sweetheart, if I had bought it and I didn't, it would have cost $10 a bottle back then. All the first gross cost $10 a bottle in 1970. And I said, but these were given me for free. I didn't care. I put them all in the bottle and I'm drinking a 45 Latour. I look over and there's a woman about two seats on my right. Says, hi, I'm Sharon. Hi, Sharon. She's looking at me. I'm unshaven. I smell like urine and I'm drinking a 45 Latour. <laughs> I don't know what she's thinking on on the way over who this guy is, but uh, that's my story about, you know, saving wine for some special occasion. No, you know, don't don't save it. It's to drink. Open it up on a Sunday afternoon at one o'clock with your wife. Don't share with nobody. Drink it out of, you know, Zaltos glassware and toast that you're able to wake up every day and help people.
1: Amen. Andy, this has been a fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to continuing to stay in touch and hopefully bust open a bottle of Paulina someday with you.
0: Hey, that'd be cool. That'd be cool. I really enjoyed the talk too. Thanks, man.
1: Thank you. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting FlynnWealthStrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters, we could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.